Blog Talk Radio. Sunday, Sign Guy and QT with you as usual. Real fast before we go into things, if you're looking for some wrestling today, RRW in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Also, IWA Mid-South wraps up the Queen of the Death Match in Indianapolis today, so make sure if you have wrestling near you, go check it out, support what they do. But I believe our guests have joined us. Do we have a ballad brother with us? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? All right. Well, Mr. Ballard, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we definitely enjoyed having you for Hockey Day. I believe your brother is on, so we have both Ballards with us. And um, right away, my co-host QT Vokes is with us, and uh, he wanted to start things out with you guys, so I'm going to pass you over to QT for the start. All right. Well, thank you, Sunday. Hello, Mr. Ballard Brothers. Welcome back. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. here. Yes, we had you uh, for our hockey uh, special last time you were on. Yeah, I, I heard ratings were at an all-time low when that happened. <laughs> well, I, I think I think Guy has the um, official numbers of how many people listen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to you on how many uh, listen. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Ballards, I saw your YouTube video entitled The Road Warriors versus the Ballard Brothers 2003 for Big Time Wrestling. And I was wondering if this was the only time you faced Hawk and Animal. Uh, no, we actually we faced them in UPW when we were in developmental. When the, when UPW was a developmental area, we had faced them there. Oh, okay. well. And I, I do believe that was one of Hawk's the BTW one. Hawk was really sick. I mean, he literally almost didn't make the show. And uh, he, he was, noticed he was on the video. Clothes. Yeah, he was in street clothes, and he only came in. For the for the finish, I mean, we we had to um, uh, we we literally had to go about forty five minutes with just Animal himself, which is a tough thing to do. He's a big he's a big guy. Yes, uh, pretty much Hawk uh, stayed uh, perched on the ring apron, hence the name Hawk. Yes, he was perched. <laughs> he was leaning over it. Yeah, pretty much most of the time. So yeah, he, you you could see in the. If you see anything in the video there, you could tell he was not feeling good at all. Yes, uh, that was that was in the pre-COVID era, back in 2003. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, we don't remember what that's like anymore. I'm wearing my mask right now while we're doing the interview. Just, you know. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
I'm not. I'm in a park, and nobody is is within a hundred feet of me. Oh, okay. Wow. Right. Okay. <laughs> at the at six minute and nine second mark of the video, the commentator said, "We have the Legion of Doom, two time WWE champions of the world. They are the greatest tag team in the history of this industry." Worldwide, they have done it all, and they are here in big-time wrestling. There's the bell, and the legends are ready. Lots of people throw throw that word around lightly. I can maybe count on one hand who I consider a legend. There are two uh, men right now, not those two men. Uh, they were referring to you, but the one with a painted face and the other one outside in black that can be considered legends, not the ones wearing red with Canada. I can tell you. No, absolutely not. (laughs) He said, I can tell you that maybe in their minds. My question is, do you remember the name of this commentator? It was either Uh, Dragon Dave or, or Hank, uh, 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 Hank Renner. Yes. I believe it was Hank Renner Jr. that had said that. Well, he said he could probably count on one hand the wrestlers he considered legendary. Well, then he must not be have a very big hand because just to name a few, you have Bruno San Martino, Harley Race, the Iron Sheik, Andre the Giant, Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, Randy Savage, Roddy Roddy Piper, Don Morocco, the list goes on. Wendy Richter, it seems to me the announcer needed to be briefed more in wrestling history. For sure. That's correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, even when you think of the tag team level, I mean, you think tag team, you know, legendary tag teams, the Rock and Roll Express, the Midnight Express, Public Enemy, uh, yeah, now the Dudleys, you know, they, they've done it all. You know, so uh, there's so many more. Oh, don't, there, don't put know, the Dudleys in that category. <laughs> Well, they they have they they've pretty much done all. Yeah, the Road Warriors. Uh, they you 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 know, there's so many tag teams the out there that have just yeah, you know, the Bushwhackers that that have been doing it for for so long, and that that that's one of the things too that that I kind of wish would make more of a return is I think that's kind of where us, you know, as the Bowie Brothers thrived is we were a true tag team, you know, being twins. I mean, we were very much that that was our you know. Uh, you know, we, we've always been tag team specialists. I mean, I'd like to see more tag teams that have a general tag team name and, and not just two singles guys thrown together, you know, just to fill a card or just uh, to kind of get a, a, a quick feud going with somebody to, to put them over. I mean, it's great to see just general tag teams like the New Day. I mean, that's a, it's great to see them as, you know, they're, they're all individually good wrestlers, but, I mean, when they when they wrestle as the New Day, I mean, that's where I think they're, they're – most popularity came from. Now you mentioned that the Bushwhackers and a very good uh, tag team. What co- qualities did they have on the tag team level that interested you? Well, we, and put them in- we, we never said they were good. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, no, the, the the Bushwhackers. I mean, as far they taught us a lot. Like we learned from them how to do how you could have a match doing little to nothing. Because our first time wrestling them, they, they, they said, okay, mate, 
we can't take body slams or bumps because both of our hips are, are, are gone. Uh, we, we, you know, we can't, uh, they, like, they gave us a list of things that, you know, that they, they couldn't do. So it was up to us. We, we had to get creative in how we got heat and how we got the crowd to, to hate us. And they taught us how to, like, to do things behind the referee's backs so, and, and not, not so much. Like, a lot of times you see tag teams cheating all the time. It's like, if you do that yeah, all right the time, the it, it, it ruins them. Yeah, it ruins the mystique of, like, why would the crowd get angry if you're cheating the whole time and the rest not doing anything? They know they're not going to do anything. But they taught us how to, how, like, do a few things behind their back, and it really, really upped our game. I mean, when we would wrestle the Bushwhackers, we would always be main event. And we're, we're following a, a match that just did a, a double shooting star press, uh, and they kicked out of it, and they went into something else, and they kicked out of it. It's like... Uh, so we would go out there and we would get the most heat and they would, they would get the most support from the crowd. And we didn't do a lot. All we did was we went in there and we learned how to work. And there's a difference a lot of times between, uh, you know, wrestling and working. And, and there's a, um, a difference between, um, using the crowd and then just going out there and doing moves for yourself or just doing moves. A lot of times wrestlers nowadays, they, they get over on their moves, and pretty soon they won't be able to do those moves. So how are they going to get over? So we were we were taught early how to how to become a really good heel tag team and not have to do a whole bunch of moves and drop someone on their head fifty times to do it. A good, a good story on that is um, we wrestled them like many many times, and they really liked us. So um, we got on this tour um, of New Mexico. It was like four dates, and the guy it was Vladimir Koloff, so he he had good experience, and he had you know pretty much the who's who of the '80s. You know, Kamala. He had um, Road Warrior Animal was on the show, and the the main guy was the the newly released um, Kurt Henning. You know, he just got released from WWE, and he was doing this this tour. And so we wrestled the Bushwhackers. The first night we were the second match. But because we had such good chemistry with them, the second match, um, we were, like, um, right before intermission. Uh, the, the, third, the, or the, third, the second day, I mean, the third day, we were on um, the semi-main event. By the, the, the last show, we were the main event because the promoter saw just the reaction from the crowd working with them and realized, I mean, and we're, the, you know, become the main event bumping, uh, you know, Kurt Henning versus Road Warrior Animal. I mean, we bumped that main event because the promoter saw how, how well we had, had worked with them. And, and, yeah, that's, you know, kudos to them because they, they're, they're so good at getting the crowd going and just being what a true baby face was back then. Oh, okay, that's very good, very well said. All right. Say, uh, Mr. Ballard Brothers could travel back in time, and you had a choice between these two wrestlers to add to the Ballard Brothers, which one would you choose, Kurt Henning or Ravishing Rick Rude? Who would be the better fit? I'd say Kurt Henning, I would say by far, would be the, the better fit. He he um, he just he had charisma unlike any other, and the things the way he would sell things, uh, he could sell a uh, an atomic drop and make it look believable. Where most of the time people take an atomic drop and it's just the setup for another move that someone's going to duck out of anyway. But he turned an atomic. He could have he could have made an atomic drop a finisher, just just from his selling alone. 
Nothing against oh. Travis and Rick Rude. I mean, uh, you know, that's pure talent right there. But just yeah, and on a fit level, I mean, he could do uh, like Rick Rude probably wouldn't be able to do more comedy or add, you know, like that sort of uh, thing in 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 there as much as Kurt Henning would. I mean, Kurt Henning was he he could do any style, any you know, pretty much anything. Okay, all right. Same question. Little bit of difference, different era. Who would you choose to have uh, with the Ballard Brothers, Bruno San Martino or Harley Race? Um, uh, Harley Race because he was a heel. <laughs> yeah. uh, Bruno oh, okay. San Martino only if if um if only if he took um all the shine we'd we'd have Bruno San Martino though. But no, yeah, Harley Race for sure. Yeah, he was uh, he was a very good heel as well. Okay, all right. Well, in that video with the Road Warriors, at the 7 minute and 13 second mark, the announcers said, power is definitely going to be with the Road Warriors. The Legion of I, Doom... I, I, are... I di- like, I disagree with that. <laughs> well, well, he went on to say the Legion of Doom are going to have the size and strength advantage, but when the double maneuvers come in and the speed and agility and the speeding, you know it's going to be with the Ballard. My question is, at that time, wasn't it true that both of you once challenged the Legion of Doom to a bench press competition and both of them could only out bench press you by 50 pounds? No, that was incorrect. It was actually 15 pounds. Oh. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. I knew you. Get, yeah. I knew you guys came close to them in the bench press competition. Yes, yes. I was barely, barely. I mean, and it was it was because my brother, uh, he, it, like he, you know, he brought our average down. Is what really happened. Yeah. Uh, I had a sore shoulder back then, so that's the only reason why. I needed a spot. Whoa. And the spotter needed a spot. Well, see, the Actually, thing is, when my so brother bad. would do the bench press, he he would, it would you could throw a frisbee under his back because he would be arching his back so high, and and uh, so it, like I mean, once they did it where it was it was competition style, that's why he didn't he wasn't able to do that much because he's used to uh, arching his back and getting his feet on the edge of the bench, so that's what did it. I usually get a spot, and and people at the gym tell me they can't tell if he's spotting me for bench or if I'm spotting him for upright rows because we're both doing about the same amount of work. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Okay. Now, theoretically, say if you both got in trouble in, in the real world and you were jailed at San Quentin or Pelican Bay uh, prison and you had all the time in the world to work out with the weights, and as a matter of survival, how much could you increase your bench presses in a prison setting? I think it would decrease. Oh, decrease. It would definitely wow. decrease, yeah. The, uh, Why is that? Because a shiv, a shiv injury? Uh, yeah, either that or like uh, you know, someone someone may be like the the spotter may be spotting you with with a, a comb that's been turned into a knife somehow, or uh, you know, 
Uh, so yeah, you you, know, you never know on on those things. So the, I think mentally it would it would mess you up enough to decrease your bench on something like that. Wow. But actually, no. If we went we if we went to the jail, though, we would probably like unlike the Road Warriors, we would probably run the jail. Oh, I, yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh boy, run the jail. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you, I, I just, I, if you do get into a situation where you're both jailed, I hope it's like a white call prison rather than ADX Florence Supermax prison in Colorado. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we I mean, hope it would be the uh, um, Shawshank Redemption, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. So we, we, you know, we would uh, hopefully we'd have like red on our side, and then he'd be getting us like you know uh, posters of uh, uh, let's see who would be posters of these days. Uh, uh, posters of Sunny and her prime. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Yes. Or he could give each of you a rock hammer to tunnel your way out. Yes. That oh, okay. is correct. Oh, okay. All right. Well, in that video with uh, Hawk and Animal, at the 16-minute mark of the match, Animal pulled off a double suplex on both of you, followed by eliminating uh, one of you. I couldn't see who because of my computer over the top rope, and then a power bomb. At this point, Hawk climbed to the top turnbuckle, and he took off like a hawk or peregrine falcon and hit the doomsday device the announcer went on to say that the ballards didn't even know what what hit them did it indeed feel like you got hit by a peregrine falcon from the top turnbuckle more so the 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 power bomb more more so i think i still feel that today Uh, that was like a very stiff power bomb and that was all him uh with the, the the double suplex that was entirely uh, all animal strength, you know, because the timing was off because, you know, he, he went early, but so he, he just basically powered us both over. So, uh, uh, but, yeah, I, I always enjoyed taking the doomsday device from them because I would always try to completely flip over uh, to land, not just on my stomach, but on, on my back because I just thought, it, you know, it, it makes it look more devastating that way. And they, you know, he, yeah, he, he did. It was interesting seeing him coming. I mean, that's like our dream come true, you know, going up against the Road Warriors. So to take the Doomsday device twice from them, oh, yes, I'll, I'll always remember that. What, both of them? He was definitely a, a, a hawk that, a pet, or a falcon that day. Okay. All right. Well, I also saw your YouTube video. Uh, in, in the video entitled Ballard Brothers versus Burt Ringo and El Magnifico. Magnifico. Oh, yes, that what did did take that may or may not have ever happened. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> in Anchorage. Yeah, that was in Anchorage. Uh, Palmer. It was Palmer. 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 No, it's yeah, Palmer. Palmer, Alaska. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Would you say that Bert Ringo and El Magnifico were the polar op- opposites of Hawk and Animal? That no, they, they, they were a lot stronger and bigger than, than Hawk and Animal. <laughs> that, was, that was the key there. 
So yes, it wow. was hawking animal or just you know some skinny scrawny guys that uh, aren't very strong. But these guys, they uh, you know, I mean, we were we were a little worried about them. Oh, as you can tell you the truth, Bert Ringo is is, is um is you know insanely strong for his size. I mean, he does have a lot of strength. Yeah, he doesn't look it, size, but, but yeah, but but the, yeah, there's I, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's definitely the um. Uh, the polar opposite because um, of the fact that um, the Road Warriors are definitely le- legends, if not the most legendary tag team in, in the business. Okay. Well, now, on the subject of time travel, if you could go back in time, who would you rather be managed by if given the choice, Jim Cornette or Bobby Heenan? Oh, wow, that's a tough one. Um, hmm. I would say probably Bobby Heenan because I think he would uh, he would fit in a lot better with this. I mean, Jim Cornette's very good, but uh, yeah, Bobby Heenan for sure. Okay, all right, Bobby Heenan. Okay, okay. Now he would uh, uh, he, he would get thrown in the ring and take some moves for us too. Whoa, he probably could or would. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, if you competed against each other. At Coney Island, in the hot dog eating contest, who would eat the most hot dogs? Uh, well, it depends I, on what year that was. Right now, my my brother hands down would would be able to uh, he would be able to beat me and uh, Road Warrior Animal. But uh, uh, maybe back uh, back in the days when I was a little, like maybe if you want to go back to like ninety nine, ninety eight, or ninety nine. Uh, uh, he, I would say he once ate a six-pound burrito, and he got his picture on the wall. So it would definitely always be him. We went to this there's like a yogurt place, and uh, if you ate like one quart of uh, or not, it was like frozen yogurt. If you ate one quart of it, they put um, took your picture and put it on the wall. You had to do it within ten minutes. He ate two quarts within ten minutes. He was the only person to ever do that at that place. So. As Evie, yeah, even I think it's the law from Nevada. His pitcher's still up for eating a what was it? Oh, it, it, eight is, pound it burrito. Yeah. It was an eight-pound burrito. I I finished it eight in an hour. Burrito. Wow, eight-pound burrito. So, yeah, huh? eight pounds. Yeah, yeah so true story. So definitely him. Yeah, even even now it would be him. So. <laughs> Holy smokes! Okay, who could who could eat the most uh, pancakes in one setting? Keeping in mind. Oh, that would definitely that be me. Reason. I love pancakes. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I asked yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Once you said pancakes, no matter what, no matter what was added to it, the answer would be me. <laughs> how many? I how make many, pancakes uh, as well. How many six-ounce pancakes could you eat? Six ounces. Uh, well, my wrestling character, I would say forty, but uh, real life, I could probably eat. I could probably eat about six to ten of them. Oh, okay. Wow. Have you heard the legend of how many pancakes Flapjack Norton could eat? Flapjack Norton. Uh, I have not. I think it was two hundred and fifty. Wow. Well, the, well, then my number just went up. Then I would say then two hundred and forty-nine <laughs> would be my number. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. All right. Well, uh, at this time, I'm going to turn it over to a person who could eat uh, eighteen uh, pancakes in one setting. Sign guy, eighteen pancakes. 
Oh, it's a you're giving it to a rookie. Okay, the eighteen pancakes. That's a rookie. Okay, go on. Another six ounces or eight ounces. Okay, uh, back to you, son guy. Yes, thank you, right. QT. For the record, Scott Norton claimed to eat three hundred ninety-eight pancakes. That was. You know what? I mean, in the AWA. Why wouldn't he just? He should just basically open up the package and just shove it in his mouth and then put some water down it. I, that would be like the same equivalent. I, I don't know if I'm buying that. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I don't think any human being could do that. Maybe, maybe in in uh, the span of like uh, maybe six weeks that could be a possibility, but not in one sitting. There's no. I, I'm not buying that. I will let you take that up with Scott Norton. Well, Scott Norton, yeah, I mean, we pushed him around a couple times here and there. He knows who we are. (laughs) No doubt about that. Now, you guys were uh, talking just a moment ago about the tag match you did up in Alaska. You have been there multiple times in Alaska, and – the scene up there has gotten better and better over the last decade. Uh, it's sort of an unusual area for wrestling because it is isolated. So the roster they have is basically the roster they have. It's not like they can call someone from a couple of towns away if somebody gets hurt or sick at the last minute. Uh, I think they've greatly improved over the last while, but from what you've experienced being there and from what you observe, what do you think of the Alaska wrestling scene? I, yeah, I think the scene uh, is well, definitely improving. Yeah, and I, like, some, I, uh, I was just recently there uh, for a singles match, and it's like you'll never meet a, a, you know, a better group of people who are just so humble and hungry for wrestling and wanting to learn and, and just wanting to entertain people uh, than the people, than the wrestlers in Alaska right now. Now, in addition to the burgeoning wrestling scene, Alaska is famous, of course, for the fantastic hockey movie, Mystery Alaska, where they had the, weekly hockey game in town that was held outdoors, which led to those players getting a shot at the NHL. I know both of you, of course, huge hockey fans, as you were here on Hockey Day with us. Did you get a chance to play some outdoor hockey while you were up there in Alaska? No, we did not. I think the last time we played, I I think we played a couple pickup games maybe in like – 2002 but once we took off with wrestling and once we were with uh, um, when we, we were especially when we were developmental I mean they kind of didn't want us to do other things that could you know because hockey you know there's always a high high chance for injury I mean whether it be you know um, pulling a, a you know like tearing your hamstring or just in, any anything there you know there's there's definitely high uh, high chance for injury injuries so after once we, we really were developing and pushing you know, we kind of uh Stop playing hockey. Didn't mean we didn't stop loving it. We just stopped playing it. That makes perfect sense. I can definitely see them frowning on hockey injuries when they're trying to develop people. 
And it was two guys that have been around for as long as you have. You've obviously come into contact with a lot of referees, and the referees often are sort of an overlooked part of wrestling. They often get taken for granted, not only from the fans, but many times by promoters and wrestlers and people within the industry. I know you've been around a lot of great ones. Who would you say are some of the better referees that you've had that may not get that respect or the acknowledgement that they really should? Uh, definitely uh, Sparky, Sparky Ballard. Ballard. Yeah. yeah. He's one of, one of the, 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 um, the best uh, that, that we, you know, we've ever been around. I mean, really, really good guy, you know, really, um, you know, that no, he knows that inside and out. I mean, we've kind of brought up to him before. He should actually do um, uh, seminars on just on repping because I mean that's an art as well, you know. So, I mean, the rep really adds to the match. I mean, uh, a lot of people, you know, on the outside don't really see that, but I mean, the referee is a, a, especially if you use them correctly, which we always would use the refs in our match. I mean, they're, they're an integral part of the match. So yeah, definitely Sparky. Um, Almost every place we've gone, we've had a pretty, pretty decent ref that um, that was uh, uh, pretty knowledgeable about about what they were supposed to do. So uh, uh, let's see, uh, Alex Goldstein comes to mind too. He was with BTW. He was pretty good. Um, but yeah, just all, all over all the places we've gone to, we've always um, seemed to have you know, the referees that that wanted. Like now, referees are even traveling. Or Rick Knox for sure. He was he was uh, definitely I, I would say, um, but you know, in the top two percent would be Rick Knox. He's a very very good ref. Now the two of you came up in wrestling in an era where. The West Coast was producing a lot of really great talent. You had guys like Frankie Kazarian, Christopher Daniels, Samoa Joe, John Cena that all came out of the California area uh, when they initially trained. Yeah, but those guys, I mean, they never really made anything of themselves. That's the only problem. Well, not in comparison to the Ballard brothers, but, I mean, they they did okay. <laughs> <laughs> just okay, especially that Cena guy. I mean, he, you know, he he he, he was just okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody ever saw him where he ended up. Yeah. Oh. Well, he was yeah, actually. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a, a funny story about John Cena. That uh, true story was uh, there was a a uh, Jasmine St. Clair. And I had to, he needed a ride. He lived in Venice at the time, and it was a UPW show. So we had to, uh, we gave him a ride back. And she was angry at me for uh, having him get in the car because she didn't want him to know where he lived. And she yelled at me and said, that loser, why'd you let that loser in the car? Man, he'll never amount to anything in his life. Now he knows where I live. Pretty funny that, that he's now a, uh, you know, probably a billionaire. <laughs> I'm guessing that oh, yeah. it didn't amount to anything that he knew where she was. <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely not. But yeah, the West Coast scene, especially back then, I mean, early 2000s, was just blowing up. It was one of those things where yeah. 
Um, before it was like you'd always try to get to the East Coast to get noticed, but it was the opposite. Now people were coming in from from the East Coast to the West Coast because the West Coast was, you know, the West Coast for the longest time was, uh, uh, you know, um, they, they they it was like smaller shows. It wasn't really a lot of fly-ins unless it was like a big name. But then it got to the point to where, you know, with the, with PWG and a lot of the uh, the other leagues coming out at the time um, that were there flying in a lot, a half of the roster was East coast talent. So pe- people, all sorts of people um, were, were, you know, doing their best to come here because this is where everybody was getting noticed, especially with UPW. I mean, the scene backstage, they have the meetings and it would be, you know, it would probably have like maybe, I don't know, 50, 40, 50 wrestlers back there that were on the show, but there'd be 75 to 100 wrestlers willing to put, set up the ring, do whatever they had to do just to try to get a spot on the show. They'd bring, and they'd all say, oh, I brought my gear with me just in case you have a spot. And you, so you'd have, a, you know, every UPW show, they'd probably be about 75 wrestlers just trying to get on it just so they can get their name out there. One of the tag teams that I think deserved more recognition that came out of California, I don't think they had a hugely long run, but one of them still extremely active in the North Carolina region, that being Seymour Snot. Uh, he teamed with George C. Snot around the same time <laughs> that you guys were breaking in. Did you have a lot of matches with the Snots? Yes, we're actually um, his um, uh, um, Seymour. We were his first match. It was a um, uh, uh, it was a six man tag, and, and and so we were actually his first match. So yeah, we did a little feud. They had um, Betty Beefcake was their manager, and we had cheerleader Melissa for APW as our manager, and, and we we did a little program with them. So yeah, we had, we always had some good fun matches with them. It was a different perspective working with them because we'd get to incorporate more of the comedy. And so it, it, it helped us because then, you know, we would kind of, uh, you know, it would be the match setup would be much different. And uh, yeah, we, we love working with those guys. I still keep in touch uh, with them, you know, whenever I can, we always, you know, um, trade jokes back and forth. So, but yeah, he's, uh, he's, uh, I did notice he's, he's, he's gotten really good size too. And he's doing really well in North Carolina. He's getting a, a lot of bookings out there. Absolutely. Now, uh, Seymour Snot, of course, the current gouge heavyweight champion, that being gimmicks only underground grappling entertainment, which is <laughs> different than your standard promotion where, Everyone in Gouge basically has some type of gimmick. It's uh, largely comedy-based in nature. Has there ever been any talks of the Ballard Brothers making the trip to resume some matches with Seymour Snot in Gouge? I haven't heard anything yet, but I mean, yes, our phone, uh, we're open. So, I mean, yeah, if they wanted us to come out here, we would love that. That would be, you know, uh, just the things that we could do there and that w- with him, you know, just from the chemistry that we had when we worked with him in APW. I mean, yeah, we would, it would, it would be a blast to, to, to get back in touch uh, as far as that, that with, with the, the shows there. We'd love to do, um, yeah, we never did North Carolina either. So that would be a, another um, uh, interesting milestone for us. Well, hopefully that will happen. I would personally love to see a match like that. Oh, us too. 
Now, speaking of traveling, one of the things that is of vital importance to any wrestler is their travel bag. And a lot of young wrestlers may not appreciate this, but choosing the proper travel bag can make life a lot easier when you go on the road. Uh, Not every bag is right for every person, so a lot of times a lot of research has to be done depending on your individual needs for the travel bag. As people that have been around for quite a while and that have probably gone through a couple of bags in their careers, what recommendations would you have for the actual travel bags for some of the younger wrestlers listening? The most important thing, absolutely most important thing when thinking of getting a wrestling bag is size. You want to get something you can carry onto that plane because you always want to carry your stuff with you because if you have, you know, like with sometimes you'll go straight from one show to another show or you're, you know, you go to the airport, you get picked up, you go right to the show. Uh, I mean, so if your bags get lost or something happens, you know, you don't have gear for the show. So absolutely a, a must for any wrestlers to have, um, you know, a bag that's going to fit in any overhead compartment that, and that you could always bring as a carry-on on every flight because of that. Uh, have you personally ever gone through a situation where airlines lost luggage or... Uh, gear was lost in the traveling. Um, my personal stuff was multiple times, but never the wrestling stuff because we always carried that on. So, uh, you know, we've actually had to do tours where we we're there at a place like I think we we're one time we were in New York for three or four days, and we only had one the change change of clothes that we the clothes that we went up with because they uh, we were moving around so much they couldn't get get our bags to us. You know, we finally um picked them up they they had them at the one of the hotels we're at and i think it was in, in new jersey so we ended up picking the stuff up there but yeah it was it's, it was one of those things that luckily we had our gear bag with us on the plane otherwise um that would not have, that we, it would have been every match would have had to have been some sort of street fight you know so that would have uh, changed everything definitely so now i went to the aforementioned gouge a few months ago I had my wrestling gear in the carry-on, in the overhead bin. Someone actually snagged the bag from the overhead bin. I was panic-stricken for a few minutes, but luckily they realized and brought it back within a few minutes. But the number one rule was almost eradicated right there in front of me as I couldn't find my wrestling bag, which I had brought on the plane with me. Oh, well. So, but yeah, I kind of, always keep your don't think we can next to you, apparently. Yes. Um, but, you know, we've had that happen before, too. I mean, and this is, I mean, with traveling, um, as you know, this is more of a standard thing. Sometimes you're not always booked in the first um, group, you know, so you're in, in, you know, group four or five or whatever. So sometimes wherever the seat, you know, that like for us, it's a, a good example would be Southwest. You know, what this is more so where you don't have assigned seating. Well, even when you do, sometimes people, you know, will put the, their stuff there anyway if, if somebody that they know is there. So they'll take up all the overhead space. So you might have to put your gear bag at the end of the plane and you're sitting near the front of it. So, you know, those, those things, sometimes those things happen. 
So yeah, and so just then you got to go through the whole wait for the whole flight to get out so you can walk to the back to get your bag, and then you find out that somebody took it, and then they're like, oh wait, I'm sorry, this one's not mine. Yeah, it always scary when you have to travel a lot for wrestling because things like that can definitely wreck your whole trip. And another good thing to do too is to customize your bag, whether you use uh, just some sort of like a uh, you know paint, like a coat of paint or something. You could you could always put some sort of design or something there to where it, it kind of customizes it. Because even with the tags, those tags fall off um, now and again. So that way, if you have something or, or get the like ugliest. Um, piece of luggage you could think of that people, even if they could take it, they wouldn't want to, just because they don't want to be seen in public with it. That would probably be the uh, some other good advice for those young up and coming. Yes, my my um, brother would oftentimes use hot pink bags, hot pink. <laughs> I would I would just use like a uh, I, I would just use like a, a like the Glad trash bags. I would use that. That way people would be embarrassed to take that. So. <laughs> Now, you guys are from an era in wrestling where when you were breaking in, it was towards the end of the tape trading era. Tape trading was a very important part of wrestling that a lot of newer fans don't really have concepts of what it was like back then, but you would trade tapes with people from all over the world in order to see wrestling from outside of your area unless it was a national company. So if you wanted to see an independent promotion where wrestlers that came from independent promotions outside of your area, you had to tape trade. When you were wrestling, were you using tape trading as a way to kind of look at different areas that you might want to go to wrestle? Were you looking at that kind of a that, that was tool? Our, that was our tool. That was our tool to get booked. As we would back then, what you'd do is you'd have a, a music video made, and then you'd put like two or three of your best matches on there. And um, and that that is uh, that is how you would get booked. You'd find out. You'd go into the wrestling magazines and find the leagues and find their addresses and uh, – and you would just mail it out, and hopefully they got you. But one thing that was bad about the tape trading area that happened to us, because we, we were very inventive. We were, I would say that we're probably the second most inventive tag team in, uh, in well, the third, I'd say, because you've got the Midnight Express, and then the SAT, and then... I would say it was us, and then the back, backseat boys were very inventive. And we would send out our tapes to all these different areas, and all of a sudden all these people are using our specialty double-team moves on the East Coast and uh, in the Midwest because when you would send these tapes, a lot of times uh, the, um, the, the promoters were actually wrestlers themselves. So we had a lot of our moves stolen uh, because, of, uh, because of that. Uh, our biggest problem with that uh, in that era of the tape trading is we had beta, so it was very hard for us to um to to, to get tapes for that. That was probably more of a my, bro- niche my brother still has dial up than of regular tape trading then because not a lot of people had the beta. <laughs> 
No, I'm kidding. We had VHS, but uh, but I, 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 that that was a very fun time because I remember being introduced, like my brother and I being introduced to um, uh, a league that was called Torimon back then. And it, be, and it was what became came of Dragon Gate, you know, and most of those guys doing it. I mean, it was so different, the speed and the way they did it. I mean, it was it, it was a lot of not no selling, you know, it was a lot of big moves, and but it was just fun to watch. It was a different style, and 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 just seeing you know getting tapes from that back. I think it was RF videos where we got some of those, but um, but it was just yeah, it was just fun. It was a fun era to do that because it was like nowadays you could just go on YouTube, you could see anything about anybody so i guess back then you know you kind of had to have that tape out there to get you know for for the the publicity so it was you had to hustle you know uh so that was uh, i kind of like that that forced you to step out of your element and and actually you know spend the time and money to get something uh, of, of decent quality made you mentioned the independent guys stealing moves and so forth, which of course is always a danger if you send tapes out. But being in developmental, did you notice then that a lot of the people in developmental would use the moves from independent wrestlers? Because I know in the last few years that's something that we've seen crop up where people in developmental will hear of a move or they will know someone from the independence that had a unique move and then they oh, will make I, it their own I, absolutely once they get to developmental I, and the uh, other guys still work in the independence and all of a sudden the guy on tv gets the credit for the move i i could tell oh, you yeah, a story like, that involves us that involves us like uh we um Okay, well, uh, well, our finish, we were told we had to come up with a finish, finish, finishing move that we, um, we could beat someone who was uh, 150 pounds or we could beat someone who was 300 pounds. So we came up with, uh, and this had never at the time and never been done before, was a, uh, a double reverse Russian leg sweep. Like a, they, they call it like you know, a flatliner flat is, is what the name goes. But, I mean, that was something that we had, had come up with. And we were in UPW at the time. And that was a developmental area. Well, uh, Canyon was sitting in the crowd at, at one of the shows. And Canyon saw us do that move, and he thought, you know what, that'd be a cool move to do as a single guy. So he took that move, and he started doing it. So then Nova, and, and, then, um, and we know this because we knew all of these people, and later on this all came out. So then all of a sudden Nova starts doing the same move, and then Edge sees that, and then Edge starts doing that move for his finish. So, like, years and years later, we were at Cauliflower Alley, and I saw Edge. Edge was our friend because we, uh, we did some stuff with him and, and, uh, in UPW. But like, uh, so he, he knew who we were, and, and he, he was always very uh, friendly and, and would always talk to us. So I asked him, I go, hey, where, where did you get that move, by the way, uh, that, that you did and he said, oh, man, he goes, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I, I saw Nova do it one time on, um, on uh, ECW, so I just I, I, I snaked it from him. So we're, fr- we're really good friends with Nova. We, we stayed at his house. He still has uh, uh, photos of us somewhere. We, we, we hit about 300 of our, uh, of our, uh, our uh, promo pictures inside of his house, and uh, he was still finding them like six years later. So uh, – so Nova said, oh, he goes, yeah, well, I saw Chris Canyon do it. 
And then so I started doing it. And then so Chris Canyon eventually said, oh, I saw these two guys. Uh, I saw these two guys at a, a UPW show do it, and I, and I did it. So that move, there, there's your cycle of where that move came from. That's a fantastic move story for sure. Uh, speaking of Canyon, in the last two or three years, Vice TV has come out with the Dark Side of the Ring series, which has been a really popular topic within the wrestling community, be it fans or people that work in it. Um, there's been a lot of episodes out in the last season or two, a lot of those episodes have really caused problems for the people that took part in the episode, uh, just things that got out from that episode that got them in trouble and so forth and so on. Obviously, they're a, a popular show, and they have educated people on the subjects that they were discussing in a given week. But looking at it as an overall project, do you think shows like Dark Side of the Ring are helpful to the wrestling industry or harmful to the wrestling industry? I, I wouldn't say it's helpful to the wrestling industry. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's it's more helpful for the fans, but harmful for the wrestler. That's my opinion on it. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. It's it's like, uh, yeah, very nostalgic. A lot of people, like the Jimmy Snooker story, you know, a lot of people didn't know about that until the dark side of the ring. You know, there's a lot of, I, I mean, there's probably a wealth of things. Dino Bravo, I mean, these are things back then that you didn't really hear about. I mean, it would be similar, too, to... um. For instance, like when people watch their favorite show like Brady Bunch and they have like the behind the scenes or whatever, what happened on the Brady Bunch and you see all these things and you're like, wow, that was my childhood. I would have never thought anything like that happening during that show, you know. And yeah, everybody seemed like they, you know, when you see them and they're in public or whatever and they're getting, you know. So it's the same thing, I think, with the dark side of the ring. I think when people start to see that and they do start to see some of the negative aspects of it, it's, it's, you know, they, they, they eat it up, but, you know, for the wrestlers, it could be very harmful because it could also bring, bring back for, for someone that had that happen or someone that was involved in that, it could bring back a lot of painful things. One of the things that people use to sort of educate themselves on wrestling, in addition to shows like Dark Side of the Ring is of course, reading wrestling-related books, and since Mick Foley's book went to number one on the bestsellers list, there's been countless books on wrestling. Uh, just in the last few weeks, John Moxley released his autobiography. Uh, there's a tag team you've been familiar with before, the Young Bucks, that came out with a successful autobiography in the last year. I bought a book from Kevin Sullivan yesterday called Old School that was written by his wife that is a fictionalized tale based on actual events. So there's a lot of wrestling material in book form that has hit the market in recent times. What books are out there that 
the two of you have either read or been familiarized with in some way that you would recommend to the people listening? Yeah, there's quite a few ones. Uh, Mick Foley's, of course, that was one of the original ones. And um, uh, yeah, Ric Flair's. There's just a lot of them that, ho- uh, I mean, what I've kind of seen a few people do is they would read these books, and I think sometimes the, the unfortunate thing is, is you get the negative effects of it where they see the traveling and how they, you know, the effects it takes on their body and how they took all these somas and relaxers and, and, and everything like that. And I've actually seen a few people in the industry do that. And, you know, just because it was kind of in the book, they, they, they thought that they, you know, that they should go through that too because, hey, they're in the loop and, and, and all that stuff. But, um, but, but yeah, the, well, the Young Bucks one I think is really good. Uh, we were actually in the Hardys book, so of course I I, I definitely would recommend that because they did have something when they came to the UPW show uh, about us. Um, we were I think in China, when a, a book about China. I don't think it was a, a autobiography by her or anything like that. But um, but there's a book of China, and, and they supposedly they they thought it it was us against this other um, uh, one of, somebody else from UPW, but they thought it was China. So they put us in the book with her. You know, they had our pictures in there. So, but I would definitely recommend like the the Hardys too, because you know they're, uh, you know they're they're good friends of ours, and and so of course we're gonna push them. Another thing that fans can read that has been around for over forty years now is Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Uh, magazines, of course, are not as uh, healthy a industry as they were 25, 30 years ago, but PWI is still cranking out issues every other month. The 500 list is something that people within the industry are always watching, and fans can learn more about pro wrestling, especially since they tend to write more about independence than they have in previous years. Do you think that in today's marketplace, PWI is still sort of a viable promotional tool for wrestlers? For me, I think so. I mean, because that's the thing for us. We've been in the the top 500 many, many times. And that's something, as a kid, we would go to uh, this mall. um, It was called the Old Town Mall, and they had a, a magazine store, and of course, we would always have our parents buy the wrestling magazine, and we would read it right then and there, and see the rankings and all that. And like, once you're a part of history for that, I mean, there's that it'll always be there. You're part of the lore of that. You know, you're now, you know, that's something you tell, you know, your kids or grandkids. Hey, yeah, I was at one point in time PWI ranked me as, you know, this here. It's in a magazine, and you know, so it, it's it's you become part of that. So to me, I think it is, you know, and I think a lot of there's there's a lot of Anything that will interest people to say, hey, you know, um, I like wrestling. Where can I get more information uh, about it? Or, you know, whether it be, um, especially if it goes into the storylines and just uh, a lot of the um, talking about the old school matches from the 80s, anything like that that has good in-depth stories, I mean, to to me, I think is is definitely a, a viable source. Well, speaking of books, though, too, um, my brother and I were thinking of coming out with one, but um, it was going to be about a cookbook, but since neither of us could cook, it's going to be like how to microwave fish within five minutes. So, yeah, look for that one out there, um, you know, at, at your local bookstore or online. 
I will definitely be on the lookout for that at my local bookstore <laughs> and or merchandise table at arenas near yeah. and far. <laughs> also near. <laughs> right. Well, it looks like your brother has dropped the call, but we are just a few minutes away from the end of the show, and I want to make sure you have ample time. So if there is anything that you would like to say to the listeners in closing, plug and promote anything and everything, the social medias, the upcoming appearances, merchandise, your favorite seafood restaurant, floor is all yours. Yeah, uh, no, thanks. Well, of course, if you're in Seattle, you have to go to Ballard Brothers Seafood because there's actually a, a town up in Washington right above Seattle called Ballard. So they have a thing called Ballard Brothers Seafood. So when we first started going online and looking up things, um, that was the first thing that always popped up when we typed in Ballard Brothers. It was a seafood place. So well, we will always remember that. Um, well, lately we've kind of took a hiatus from it just because we're both dealing with injuries. I had a, uh, um, a major knee surgery. I had a uh, complete ACL replacement uh, in 2019. And just with the COVID, it was very hard to, to get the physical therapy and everything needed. So I'm still working on that, you know, developing and, and trying to get the strength back in, in, in my knee. And, uh, you know, so right now we're like my brother did, did a show in Alaska so we're yeah we're, we're we're looking for it. I mean, we'd love to do gouge. We'd love to do pretty much anything, any uh, any place anybody would take us. So uh, our best social media is our personal ones. It's uh, Shane Ballard on Facebook and Shannon Ballard on Facebook. So you could kind of see the different things we could do there. And you know, we might put like pictures of our cats up and things like that. So. Uh, you know, and like our grocery list. So if anybody wants to say, oh, hey, I want to contribute to their grocery list, you could say, here, here's like a 15 cents off coupon for fish. And we'd be happy with that. But, uh, uh, yeah, we're, we, you know, we're going to try to see what we can do. I mean, we've been doing this for uh, over 20, 20 years. I mean, I'd like to have another match. Well, we definitely would have more matches, you know. So th- this would be uh, our let's see 90s this would be our fourth decade that we've wrestled in so i mean that would be something that we we haven't done as a tag team yet because of my injury so um i would definitely want to do that so we could do you know four decades of ballard brothers wrestling and we're also in working on trying to get a dvd even though that's kind of like a uh older form of you know entertainment but uh we're trying to get a, a dvd out of our matches it would probably be called the least worst of the ballard brothers just so that we could have that and we'll try to get some current interviews and all that so keep an eye out for that if, if you know we're in the developmental stages of that so um yeah we've basically been doing a little bit more music together too so that's if, if something ha- comes out with that we'll put that on the uh, on the page as well well, Mr. Ballard, it has been an absolute pleasure having you back on the show with your brother. We always appreciate you taking the time to be with us, and I will be on the lookout for a microwaving fish book and music. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, if our shows come up. I mean, we would love to do Alaska. We'd love to basically make another run at uh, doing, you know, all the favorite places and the, the places that not only have inspired us, but where we may have inspired as well. We'd like to go back and, and you know, give back to a lot of the, um, the younger wrestlers coming up to see where, we, you know, that that's like our favorite thing to do now is just to be able to inspire and push people to become better. And, you know, maybe we'll get back into teaching. Maybe we'll get a school going again. I mean, there's a future is uh, out there. So, you know, we just have to... Uh, uh, the frame is there. We just have to now um, uh, fill in the picture. Absolutely. And if you find yourself going to 
the Ballard Brothers Seafood. That's like 15 minutes from me, so I would meet up with you there, and we could all have some seafood. And down the street, there is a guy who had a cup of coffee and wrestling named Dwayne Johnson that happens to own an ice cream shop in Ballard. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, interesting story. So yeah, next time I'm up in that area, I'll definitely have to um, visit Ballard. I'll have to get all sorts of memorabilia that says, like, Ballard High School or, uh, you know, especially anything Ballard Brothers Seafood, you know, so that way people think I, we own the place, you know, but go, oh, they, they started a seafood place. That's great. Absolutely, and there is such a thing as Ballard High School, so you're in luck. Yes. <laughs> sounds, uh, sounds like a plan. All right, well, well thank, thank you, you again for always... being on the show today. We definitely appreciate you. Hopefully we'll get to do this sure. again in the not-too-distant future. Oh, anytime. Yeah, the pleasure is ours. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on the show. Absolutely. Fames, if you have not gotten familiar with the Ballard Brothers, I don't know why you haven't, but remedy that. They are fantastic. They've been around for a very long time. They have fought a ton of people that you definitely know. So seek them out on the YouTubes and on the social media. Get familiar as they make another run to do four decades as a brother tag team. We will be back with you next week. Next Friday afternoon, we will be joined by Omega out of the Louisville area. And then one week from this very day, second-generation performer, referee J.B. Stewart, who I have known since he was but a very, very, very young child. He will be with us for the first time. Make plans to be with us. Continue to support your local independents. Be safe out there, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, everybody, tune in.